1: Not only do you upgrade to FAIR, you're also joining a reliable network you can trust to have your back. No hidden requirements, no activation fees. Now that's FAIR. Learn more at uscellular.com.
2: Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, Editor-at-Large of Recode. You may know me as Donald Trump's skincare consultant. He looks good to me, but then again, I'm always wearing shades. But in my spare time, I'm just a reporter, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power change and the people you need to know. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Dan Pfeiffer, the co-host of the crooked media podcast Pod Saves America and former senior advisor to President Obama, He's also the author of a new book called "Untrumping America, a plan to make America a democracy again. In it, he explains how Democrats can defeat President Trump at the ballot box in November. But he says only doing that won't fix a much larger problem, the broader Republican Party and what it is doing to democracy. Dan, welcome to Rico Decode. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. So, we're recording this a day before Super Tuesday, and what a day. Today is like a perfect day. I mean, yes. Mayor Pete leaves, Amy Klobuchar leaves, everything is, is like moving very quickly yeah. in the dem- in this race right now, and it's quite early on in, I would say early on in the in the process, but maybe not from your perspective. Um, I want to get your book, but I want to get your take on what's happening today, what's going on.
3: I think the narrow paths of the candidates are making it very clear that the, f- that the it became, I think, clear based on how Joe Biden did in South Carolina that this really came down to really only him and Bernie Sanders who had a legitimate chance to have like a real delegate lead heading into mm-hmm. the convention. And Klobuchar, and Amy Klobuchar, and people just sort of recognized that. And particularly for Amy Klobuchar, whose state is on the ballot on Tuesday. Mm-hmm. And her main talking point is she's never lost an election in Minnesota. And right. I think there was some risk of that on Tuesday, that she mm-hmm. could lose at her state to Minnesota. And so we're seeing quick consolidation into a race that – primarily between Sanders and Biden, Mm -hmm. with these two X factors living out there with Elizabeth Warren still— On the
2: Sanders side, sort of the Sanders—
3: I think that's an open question. Right. A lot of—in the polling I've seen, Warren's support is, at best, 50-50— Sanders, someone else, right? Or that someone else had been Pete a lot, mm-hmm. um, had been could be could have had been Klobuchar. Whether it means it'll be fifty fifty, Biden Sanders, so my question. Mm-hmm. And then you have the half billion dollar question of Mike Bloomberg mm-hmm. and what impact he's going to have going forward,
2: right? And so, how do you look at it? What do you? Where are we?
3: I think that right now, Bernie in, the, in one of the grand ironies of American history, Bernie Sanders' best friend is Michael Bloomberg mm-hmm. because his presence in the race is making it much more likely that Bernie will come out of Super Tuesday with a very large delegate lead because because basically Michael Bloomberg has purchased, you know, 10 to 15% of support in all so these hurting states. Biden. It it seems to be almost overwhelmingly hurting Biden mm-hmm. and both in the states that Bernie's going to win, it's keeping Biden's margin down and in the states that Biden is going to win on Tuesday, it's keeping his win margin down, mm-hmm. therefore meaning that Biden will get fewer—Bernie will get more delegates from the states he wins, and Biden will get fewer delegates from the states he wins, and putting Bernie, potentially, depending on how all this goes on Tuesday night, into a very strong position heading into the convention.
2: All right, so talking about the convention, and then I want to get to the of mm-hmm. America, how we changes. What does that set up be? They keep, they keep talking about a, a convention that's brokered. I, I don't think that's going to happen. That's not a thing. There are there's no never brokers. Ha- that doesn't happen anymore, yeah. right? Well, it's,
3: there's no brokers, right? right. There are no—like, there's no back room. If mm-hmm. there was a back room, there would be no smoke in it, and there <laughs> is no. So, a contesting convention, a broker convention, are two different things. Brokered suggests that some group of power brokers put together a coalition right. of delegates against to a majority. Which Contested happened me, in the past. It has. It happened, but it has not happened since we changed the primary system in 1972 to mm-hmm. avoid that. Mm-hmm. What you could have is a contested convention, which has also never happened, where the delegates just pick. After the first ballot, you go to the second ballot, and and then it's a Mm free-for-all. Everyone can vote for who anyone they wanted to vote for. And the rules are incredibly complicated, but I don't think power brokers will necessarily be involved. It'll be the capacity of whoever the leading candidates are then to persuade people that they are the best chance to beat Trump.
2: And then why wouldn't there be a contested election?
3: Why wouldn't there be a contested convention? Mm-hmm. The only reason why I think it would not happen is one of the two candidates, as we sit here today, the day before Super Tuesday, that person is most likely to be Bernie if it is anyone, has a big enough lead that the convention does not want to take, doesn't want to take the, the nomination away from the person with the most votes. Right. I think that is the most likely thing to happen. I, th- I find it, unless it is like six delegates here or there is some sort of event that raises gigantic questions about who the nominee is that comes out long after the process. Mm-hmm. I would be very surprised if the nominee is someone other than the person with the most elegance.
2: The most elegance, which seems to be Bernie. Sanders, Seems
3: most likely to be Bernie, although this race is narrowed much faster. And I think all the models suggest that Bernie is most likely to be that person. It seemed overwhelmingly so. Biden now, I think, has a shot to do it if he gains strength because the race is consolidated so quickly, we're just having—we've had two candidates drop out by lunch West Coast time.
2: Right, and then—but you still have Bloomberg.
3: Still have Bloomberg. And will Bloomberg and be in Bloomberg. the race after the Super Tuesday if he does not win any states is an open question. What is Elizabeth Warren going to do? Mm-hmm. Um, and what impact will that have on some of these states down the line? And there are a couple of states for Biden that are really important coming up after this one, most notably Florida and Georgia. Mm-hmm. Florida—some polling shows that Sanders suffers mightily in Florida. There was actually a poll last week that had him— under the fifteen percent threshold, Cuba, because potentially be Cuba. There's a never been a super strong state for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and the poll was taken in his defense in the middle of the Cuba. The Cuba, sort of what I think, tempest in a teapot as it relates to mm-hmm. him. But if if Biden were to clean up there, that is a state with a huge trove of delegates that would give him a shot to be in the game here.
2: All right, I want to finish up. That. We now have so many vice presidential candidates everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> We've never had a better better choice. Yeah. What? How does that shake out? It's going to be important, given these people are of a certain age. Yeah,
3: yes, I saw the median age of presidential candidates is now seventy-seven point oh, five. I think. That's <laughs> astonishing. I feel
2: young, so young.
3: Yeah, <laughs> eighty is the new thirty. I, don't I know. guess it's okay. unbelievable. Um, I think eighty,
2: 80 it, is the new forty. Seventy is the new thirty. Oh, is I'm that what to, it is? Okay. To keep it together. All, right, all
3: right. Sorry, <laughs> it's changing every second. It here. is. Um, I think the vice presidential pick is much more important substantively than politically. Mm-hmm. Like can, vice presidential candidates don't deliver states. Mm-hmm. Um, they can provide some sort of ideological balance to the ticket, or
2: people feel better about. They voting. feel
3: better, or you can screw it up, right? Mm-hmm. Like the Sarah, that's the Sarah Palin rule, right? Mm-hmm. You can absolutely you can be a candidate of advanced age like McCain, and then pick someone wholly and demonstrably unqualified for mm. the position. It
2: started off good,
3: yeah. It, that, those first two weeks were good. Week three, <laughs> downhill. Exactly. Uh, I think that the question here is going to be. I just have to imagine in a party that is majority female, getting younger and and much more diverse, where the base of the party is African-American, Hispanics, and other voters of color, that if we have a male, white male nominee over the age of 70, you're going to have to provide some balance in the ticket. I was very interested to see that Bernie Sanders told the San Francisco Chronicle that he would not pick anyone who did not agree with him on Medicare for all. Uh-huh. Which I think is a— Really narrows the field very quickly, the sorts of people that you would—because you would think, I think, just sort of, who could Sanders pick that would provide some of the stuff I just mentioned, like Kamala Harris would be high on that list, Stacey mm-hmm. Abrams would be high on that list, mm-hmm. Amy Klobuchar could be on the list, um, but all those people don't meet that test. Who does? I don't know. I mean, that's sort of—if you're looking for a female politician of color who's on that list, AOC is not— Old enough. Not old enough. Um so it could, you know, that could be Pramila Jayapal, I think, would actually be a phenomenal vice presidential vice president, mm-hmm. congresswoman from Massachusetts and have the progressive caucus. Um but it, you get a, you get you shorten the list uh pretty quick when you have that threshold. I also think the vice presidential nominee always just adopts the policies of the right. nominee. Yeah. So I don't know why you that litmus test doesn't
2: He I, likes litmus tests. I guess I guess he? that's it. He's I a litmus know. test kind of guy.
3: I guess it's a pure it's purity politics, I guess. And I don't yeah. think that— if you're trying to unify the party, I'm not sure that's a necessary step yeah, to do that. Sure I wouldn't cut goal. my list.
2: I'm not sure that's You don't think goal? so? I kind of like him, but I can, he's very uh, inflexible. He strikes me as a very inflexible man. I don't mean to—you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. No, I— I think he likes to—the rep, rep, repetition on Cuba was unnecessary.
3: Yeah, I He think, wanted to
2: make his point the it, way someone's old grandpa does that.
3: I think there's a lesson here that Obama had to learn, too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I think— Naturally more flexible than I mm-hmm. think Bernie Sanders, but is sometimes that you have to play the game of politics because you're building a coalition. Yeah, I don't. and even though what Bernie said was verbatim about Cuba's verbatim what Obama said
2: mm-hmm.
3: in 2015 yes. when he went to Cuba, the reaction was I think disproportionate and incorrect. Well, it's but you he's ha- been
2: there, and there's pictures of him there, yeah. and the whole there's history. Yeah, I think it, it, it's tied, unfair. It's,
3: it's not, tied to the his choice to label himself a socialist, right. a democratic socialist, but sometimes you have to just. Do th- you have to acknowledge things you disagree with within even just right. within your party mm-hmm. to unify the party. And so you can acknowledge the concerns that people upset about it without that's not the same as surrendering your point. That's right. And he he could I definitely he think likes he could have done more to point. do that. Yeah.
2: So getting to that, the idea that people do surrender <laughs> their themselves. Let's talk about the untrumping of America right. and the Republican Party. Let's start first with the Republican Party.
3: Where <laughs> are we? We are at the place where we have to understand that Donald Trump is the new norm, new normal in the Republican Party, mm-hmm. and that he is not an aberration. There will be no epiphany. Lindsey Graham is not going to go back to three personalities ago. Mitch McConnell is mm-hmm. not going to work with anyone. This is who they are. We have to understand Trump in the context of the history of the Republican Party that has been getting more radical on racial grievance politics, sort of an inexorable path for a very long time that was, I think, catalyzed by the election of Obama. and. Mm-hmm. The next Republican will also be a billionaire-funded racial grievance politician with authoritarian instincts. It Mm -hmm. just—Trump is not unique in that way. He's just abnormal in his behavior, not abnormal in his profile. So
2: explain that further. What does that look like?
3: Well, ultimately, the Republicans made a decision. Originally in—after the Voting Rights Act Mm -hmm. and Civil Rights Act that they were going to become the party of the white South. And that continued through— and that was a good political strategy for a long time it was because Louisville atwater
2: that was that, yeah, went, that was a long time ago. It was a
3: long time ago, but it the white vote trick of the white south was incredibly that was a very fruitful place to be in politics. <laughs> and over time as the demographics in the country have changed and it has become more diverse, the, the it has required the republicans to get even more blood from this shrinking stone of a white base. And what does that has required is ramping up the rhetoric around it, the fears around immigration in particular, but also terrorism and all of that. And there was a, there was a path, right, either after 2008 or after 2012 when Obama's large victories sort, I think sort of knocked them upside down and said, oh, the day they feared where demographic change was going to overtake their political power had come sooner than they thought.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And so you could have done two things at that time. You could have done this, you could have said, the only way we're going to see it long-term is broaden our appeal.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Or double down on what has been working. And they chose to double down on what's working. In part because the pressures in the base were such that, you know, they all, remember after 2012, they all came out and said, we're going to be, even Sean Hannity in 2012 came out and said, we be for immigration reform. Mm-hmm. The base revolted, they went back. This is the tail wag the dog here, I guess by the way I say it. And the key to that understanding that is what led to Trump, is that strategy only works if, you, one, you amp up the racial rhetoric, but two, you make American politics less democratic mm-hmm. because you have to both increase enthusiasm among your base, but then you also have to reduce the political power of the other party's base where you can't succeed. Yeah, it, is, it's, it has to be fear and suppression as a twin strategy. Mm-hmm. And that is how we ended up in a place where Donald Trump became president with three million less votes. But also just to think about how effective that's, that um, suppression strategy is, Barack Obama beat Mitt Romney by seven points mm-hmm. in Wisconsin in 2012. Donald Trump— beat Hillary Clinton by less than a point. But Donald Trump lost— Donald Trump got fewer votes than Mitt Romney in Wisconsin mm-hmm. because of voter suppression in that state affected the number of Democrats who could turn out, particularly in Milwaukee, which mm-hmm. was the whole— In Milwaukee is— Wisconsin, in many ways, the tip of the spear of the Republican efforts. Co- it's co-billionaire-funded efforts to reduce the power of the Democratic base.
2: So they've made this choice, and here they are. And what what's fascinating is how the reaction of Trump— what you're saying is he's not an aberration, yep. and he's just a—his particular personality is an aberration, but what he represents is not an aberration.
3: Right, and that's—I that, think that has distracted a lot of Democrats mm-hmm. because he is so unique in his behavior.
2: Yeah, that you react. All you do is react, react, react.
3: You react, react to him, but you also seem like, well, maybe he, by force of personality or, or his tweets, has forced the Republicans to act this way. Mm-hmm. And that's not—they're not responding— Maybe individually they respond on a day to day basis from a fear of a Trump tweet, but what is (laughs) driving their politics is the incentives of their strategy, and that will still exist the day after Trump is gone. And I think one of the reasons why I wrote the book was to try to make this case publicly to as many people as possible because I think a lot of Democrats do not. They believe that Trump is an aberration. It's a very comfortable feeling, yeah. right? We're, oh, I don't think he is at all. Yeah, but, I, th- you know, it's like you listen to my friend Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. He, his first ad was Joe Biden is an aberration. He still mm-hmm. believes Republicans will have an epiphany. Mm-hmm. Bernie Sanders, revolutionary as he is, still is more—he's more positive about the idea that you can work with Republicans, and you know this because he opposes getting rid of the filibuster, mm-hmm. than— other Democrats. And right. you see it in Capitol Hill a lot. And I think we have—and it's hard for these senators because they eat lunch with these people and they mm-hmm. run on the treadmill next to them or right. maybe walk quickly on the treadmill next to them in the Senate gym. And it's hard to look at them and say, oh, you are you are the problem. Trump is not the problem, right? right. And, and so we need people to recognize that when Trump is gone, if we just beat Trump, we do nothing else. We're going to end up right back in this place four years from now, eight years from now. And what scares me about that is the next— racial grievance, authoritarian leading...
2: Might be smarter.
3: ...much, like, has to be smarter, right? And certainly less likely to be distracted... By a Twitter fight with like Deborah Messing in the morning, right? (laughs) He's like more likely.
2: (laughs) It's good that he wants to do that. Yeah, yeah, we should be almost grateful about it. Anyway, we're here with Dan Pfeiffer. He's the co-host of Crooked Media podcast Pod Save America, which is an enormous podcast. We're going to talk about that at the end. He was a former senior advisor to President Obama. He is also the author of a new book called Untrumping America: A Plan to Make America a Democracy Again. We're going to talk about that when we get back with him after this.
0: Searching for what to stream next? HBO Max is where all of HBO meets the greatest collection of movies, shows, and Max originals for everyone in the family. Discover something fresh to watch with new HBO series like Lovecraft Country from Jordan Peele, Misha Green, and J.J. Abrams, or The Undoing, starring Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant. You can also jump into a new Max original like Selena Gomez's new cooking show, Selena and Chef, or The Flight Attendant, a dark new comedic thriller starring Kaylee Cuoco. Ridley Scott's even producing a new series called Raised by Wolves. Whether you want to rewatch classic favorites or finally get into that show your friends have recommended a thousand times, HBO Max has something for everyone. Start streaming today and find your next favorite. Download the app or visit hbomax.com to start your free trial.
1: If you're an early adopter, you get that your devices and your connections need to be fast and help make your life better. But you might be forgetting one thing. Tech should be fair, too. Fairness isn't a new idea, but it is to wireless. That's where U.S. Cellular comes in. At U.S. Cellular, people come first. And that means a fast, reliable connection with no hidden requirements and no activation fees. They'll even pay you back for unused data. When you upgrade to U.S. Cellular, you upgrade to FAIR. Learn more at uscellular.com.
2: We're here with Dan Pfeiffer from Pod Save America. He's written a book called "Untrumping America, a plan to make America a democracy again. Just talking about the phenomena of Donald Trump. Now, talk a little bit about, though, I mean, he has used, you know, social media. He's used Twitter particularly. He's kind of a hot mess, but he sort of has been using technological tools that make him different from other candidates. Because I don't think the Republicans saw him coming either. You know, you have that— if you' right now we're looking at all the Democrats across the stage, but that was there was a large Republican stage that did not see him coming, I think in a lot of ways even if he's inevitable
3: right I think Donald Trump is generally a willfully ignorant moron mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I think he's a marketing mm-hmm. genius okay and I I often I think his gut for a media environment it's what it is it's gut it's instinctual, not intellectual. I don't think mm-hmm. he has sat looked at in like there's data. no whiteboard. There's, There's no, no data. data. There's nothing. It's just <laughs> no
2: data dashboard. He's like, ah, <laughs> he, he, today I shall attack Deborah Messinger, perhaps
3: <laughs> Valerie Jarrett's fine. <laughs> he has two experiences that I think make him perfectly attuned to the media environment we live in. One, he grew up in the tabloid culture of New York City, mm-hmm. and two, his most recent experience is in reality television, and that I think makes him fully understand this idea about the media environment now, which is content is king. Mm-hmm. You have to be doing, so, you have to get as much attention for yourself as possible all the time so that you can drive the conversation all the time. And there is this world, like like one of the most annoying sayings is like, all PR is good PR. Mm-hmm. But I think that is somewhat true mm-hmm. in this media, particularly for someone like Trump. And he he's just constantly out there and he is driving the conversation. He's still driving the conversation. And there's both... It's a combination of three things that make this very hard for Democrats. One is Trump has, like I said, a gut instinct for what gets attention, right? right. What the inflammatory yeah, thing decides. Yeah, it's completely interesting. He, Two, he is existing in a, in a Facebook-driven media environment where the sort of content he does is sort of like pushing on an open door on the Facebook algorithm because it generates outrage. And the third thing is because he's interesting, because he drives clicks— He can function as the nation's assignment editor because in a digital ad economy, you're always going to double down on the things that get attention. And that's not even a critique of the media. Like they go – like it's also the readers. That's what they Mm -hmm. want. And so it creates this cycle where he's constantly dominating the conversation. By dominating the conversation, it's very hard for the Democrat, whoever he's running against or the messenger trying to get out, to get enough oxygen – to grow. We'll
2: talk about that because you were in the Obama administration mm-hmm. and these this is when these companies I don't you were not mm-hmm. particularly in charge of this yeah. particular part of it but you all were aware of the growing power of these companies and did nothing about it. Really did no made no moves. How do you look back at that era?
3: Well, like as you point out, I'm not involved or an expert in regulatory Right. right power, um, it seems very clear to me that more can and needs to be done mm-hmm. to look at these companies, right? I sort of remember the moment we discovered that th- sort of the tipping point of Facebook in our politics, mm-hmm. sort of in the media environment of politics, because we used to do these things where we would, there'd be some scandal in Washington, everyone would be all worked up about it, it would lead Playbook, Cable mm-hmm. News would do, would do a thing, with them, you know, Chuck Todd would be upset about it on TV, and then... We'd go talk to voters, and they would have not a clue what we were talking about. Mm -hmm. It's just their lives were so disconnected. There was nothing that was putting that information in front of them. And then around, like, 2013, Mm
2: -hmm.
3: we had this, the IRS, the sort of faux IRS scandal where a group of IRS workers in the Cincinnati office had given, been reported to have given additional scrutiny to Tea Party groups. Mm -hmm. Washington went insane. Echoes of Watergate, despite no evidence connecting it to Obama. Big deal. I was very confident that voters would not know about it. We went and we talked to voters, and they only not—they knew everything about it, Mm -hmm. but they knew it in this very right-wing frame, Mm -hmm. which was very— clear when you ask them when, it's Facebook. Yeah. It was Mm -hmm. the—that was this tipping point where the combination of the right-wing content machine and Facebook was putting information in front of voters. Mm -hmm. And, like, whether there is something on a regulatory way to go back that could have been done to sort of address that thing, I do Mm -hmm. not know. Mm -hmm. I think— as I sit here today and I think about what a the next Democratic presidency should do, there are a couple of things that I think are very important. One is we need to pass more laws, at least in the terms of politics, to bring our political advertising up into the digital world. Where Right now we're requiring right,
2: Facebook important. and
3: Google to self-police, right. which even if they're doing the things as they claim – that well, are in not. the laws. Each of them
2: are deciding a different thing. Twitter right. is deciding di- something different than Google, which is deciding right. something very different from Facebook.
3: Yeah. And we need, so there needs to be laws to govern that as we've mm-hmm. had laws that governed it for TV for decades. And I think there there has to be real, someone has to look very carefully at the fact that the largest social media messaging platforms of the world all are owned by the same person mm-hmm. and what that means. And I think, I definitely think that all of this caught Democrats in particular, by surprise. And I remember thinking, and I write about this in the book, when I remember when Hillary Clinton gave this economic speech mm-hmm. in 2015, and she made a passing dig, which was completely and 100% fair, at sort of the Ubers, lifts of the world for mm-hmm. the gig economy, right. right? And people went insane. And a lot of Democrats went insane because we had taken real pride in, in our view that we were—
2: the technocrats. The,
3: yeah, we were yeah, we were on the cutting edges. We understood where this was yeah. going. And we were wrong. And Hillary Clinton mm-hmm. was actually right. She's often right. She about is very about much right. I did
2: many interviews yes. back then. She was way on She was ahead very ahead of, the, of that.
3: Yeah. And and like we have to we are too dependent on like the connections between the party and Silicon Valley are different now than they were two or three years ago. And there's yep. obviously much more of acknowledgement. But it has been very intertwined, both in terms of funding source and post-political career location,
2: right? Right, right. I think one of the things is that, I think what Democrats have missed, and we can talk more about your book mm. in terms of the untrumping, is that they continue to lose at the digital game, the Democrats. And you just look at Facebook's, we were just talking to Kevin mm. Roos from the New York Times, the top 10 stories on Facebook are always from the right wing. Yep. So whether it's Ben Shapiro, whether it's Daily Caller, whether it's Fox News, mm. they're, they dominate social media. They sort of dominate Twitter in a lot of ways, or at least they Mm. certainly are getting their digs in, and they're constantly gaming the system. And there's not much of a response on the left side in that amount of aggression, which I think is really interesting. And then when there is aggression, people lose—clutch their pearls and lose their friggin' minds over being just as aggressive. And so what happens is we're constantly getting gamed by the right right wing— and then we're constantly not willing to do the same thing on the other side. I mean, it's a really interesting—the the question is, do you fight fire with fire or do you fight fire with, like, indignancy, which I don't think it works.
3: Right. 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 It is sort of surprising. I mean, you take yourself—people can take themselves back to 2012 after Obama mm-hmm. beat Romney. The view was Democrats were crushing the Republicans yes, in all were. parts of the digital space. They never right? were. And what that led to was some complacency on behalf of the Democratic Party— we sort of rested on our laurels because people thought they would not catch up,
2: mm-hmm. and they
3: did. And I think there's a couple of, like a couple different points I think you said. One is like the Kevin Roos tweet with the 10 mm-hmm. stories always being mm-hmm. right wing is like haunts me. Mm-hmm. And there, and so like how would a Democratic – like how would progressives writ large address that, right? Like part of it is so much of this world is, is quantity, right? It's mm-hmm. like what you are pumping into the ecosystem. And Republican billionaire donor types are funding these content organs, and they have been for a long time. That's where Breitbart came from. It's Early Free on, because Reagan, they
2: were left out of the regular media. Right. They've been doing it since Ralph Reed a million right. years ago.
3: And they have really ridden a wave in the last few years as it relates to Facebook. And there is very little of that happening on the left. And you even see it, like, I, like I, you look at sort of what do wealthy, when wealthy Democratic progressives do when they want to get into media, they don't build some digital machine that is op- is really sort of a billionaire funded mm-hmm. political messaging operation. They buy the Atlantic, they buy Time Magazine, mm-hmm. they I don't, I don't know that I'll call Jeff Bezos a liberal, but they buy the Washington Post. Right, mm-hmm. they're buying these old media, old world media records, which is that is good. We need those things as well, but there's very little been right. of sort of progressive digital media infrastructure being built up. A lot of the Democratic digital investment has been. On the app and tech side, right, right, and less of it on the media side.
2: So, what has to happen in that? Right? I'm sorry to go into tech, but of I mean, course. one of the untrumping is this ability to control information yep. and, and to be able to, unfortunately, manipulate people. To your, I don't want to use the word manipulate, no. persuade. Let's yep. use the word persuade. Yes. And one of the things is the use of these tools. I don't think it's. I mean, I wrote a column about this. Mm. It's they were left out of the other media environment, and so they they have thrived in this one. And they're also willing to do anything and use any tool. And there is a reticence on the part of. Democrats, I think, to go ugly, to go ugly in this area. Now, look, Bloomberg is doing it, and everyone's criticizing him. I'm like, spend away, sir. Like, it's great. Like, that seems like a good idea to me.
3: I think the way Bloomberg is spending money, you know, obviously, he has spent hundreds of millions of dollars on television ads, Mm -hmm. and that has been effective for him in going from zero to Mm -hmm. wherever he is, as we said today. The things he's been doing in terms of, like, hiring meme makers and content producers to to do stuff— is very interesting, and it, like and he's the one person who has the ability to do. It. Every other campaign's got to choose, right. Should we run a television ad? Right. or should we hire these meme makers to do something? Right. And the culture and the economics within a campaign usually push them to the more the safer yes. bet, which is sure. I think a mistake. Bloomberg doesn't have to choose. He can right. do all of the above. But what we have to do is we ha- we need a infrastructure that exists outside of presidential elections, mm-hmm. right? We need to, and I think there are gaps that Democrats can fill. And I do think we have to be careful. We have to understand that our voters are different than Republican voters in their media diets. So you look at that annual Pew survey of people's media consumption diets. The Republican, the diets of people who identify as Republicans and conservatives, is Fox, Rush Limbaugh, and the Drudge Report, mm-hmm. right? And then insert like Free Beacon or mm-hmm. Breitbart. here. Bright Democrats is like NPR. People love NPR, but then it is ABC, NBC, CNN, and so we. I don't think we we have to. Have a slightly different approach, but we need to create entities that are. They don't even have to be huge. They can even be micro-targeting well, at specific I think audiences. Bernie is.
2: I think Bernie's that, got a lot of them. They've Ber- got amazing podcasts. They've got all kinds of things that are, of course, you know, people have problems with.
3: Well, I think that Bernie Sanders. I think one of Bernie Sanders' best electability arguments is that he had he he at least his people. I don't know. I don't have a full sense of what Bernie Sanders is sophisticated in the media, is, but his people. Understand the need to have an alternative media ecosystem. And that is what the Intercept is about. That's what the DSA publications are about. That's what Chapo Trapass is about. Hmm. And whether you like or dislike individual ones, he has been able to survive in this election through some of the ups and the, the media narrative shifts that have failed other candidates who are dependent upon the New York Times, MSNBC, or anyone else to get their message out because they have these groups of people who are pushing content. And that's on top of a very fired-up group of people who are digitally and creatively inclined who are creating content on Mm. their own. And, like, like the rest of the party has to learn a ton of lessons from how Bernie Sanders has done this because both in, you know, the way he has fostered that environment, like I think about some of the interviews he does are very Mm. specific to lifting up these progressive alternative entities. And that, like, we should be, like, other people should be doing that. We shouldn't just always turn to Rachel Maddow Mm -hmm. or Pod Save America or anyone else. Like, are there other people you can lay hands on, Mm -hmm. give them attention, and foster them? Because we're all going to benefit from a stronger, progressive media ecosystem.
2: Right. It's interesting. Someone's like, why isn't Bernie trying to start talking to you? I was like, why would he? It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. He's trying to reach a certain person. And I may have some of those people, the tech bros kind of thing. But, Maybe not. It was really interesting. All right. When we get back, we're going to talk about what the plan is to make democracy (laughs) a democracy again. America a democracy again. We're here with Dan Pfeiffer from Pod Save America. His book is called Untrumping America. I want to find out what that means when we get back.
3: Here's today's STEM tip. Don't throw out that old plastic bottle. Repurpose it by turning it into an awesome terrarium. Just fill it with sand, pebbles, soil, and your favorite plant. It'll grow sealed right in its own ecosystem. Learn more at SheCanSTEM. A message from the Ad Council.
2: We're here with Dan Pfeiffer, former Obama administration official. You, were, you did uh, press? What, what would you say you did? I was, strategery?
3: I was the communications director for the first term. And yeah. then in the second term, I was senior advisor, which is like a combo role of politics, communications, and sort of general presidential advising. So,
2: strategery. Really. Strategery. Yeah, strategery. I guess strategery, yes. Yeah. Uh, do you miss being in politics? You, you know, you have this podcast thing now going on.
3: I do. Like, I do. At times, I do. Like, I—like, right. we were in Iowa with Pod of America was in Iowa for the few days before the caucus, and obviously I have a lot of fond memories mm-hmm. of that—of 2008 in Iowa with Obama, and I was pretty envious of the staff who were back there, you know, like, yeah. coming in with the candidates, and so I do miss parts of that. There are elements of it I do not miss, um, and I enjoy sleeping a little bit more than I used mm-hmm. to, and— being less stressed than I was. Right. But I thought I was going to leave the White House and quit politics and be done with it and mm-hmm. go on to other things. And it turns out I, it's a thing I love. But it's you a, did.
2: You went off and you did a GoFundMe. You worked at GoFundMe. I did. Uh, and then you didn't, and you did the podcast thing.
3: Yeah, so I le- I left the White House in 2015. And I remember when I was leaving, I was talking to President Obama like on my last day. And he said to me, and what was unhelpful, I think, mm-hmm. uh, he, he was asking me what I was going to do. And I honestly had no idea. I had no plan beyond find a candidate I love, mm-hmm. work in the White House, and have this experience. Mm-hmm. And so I don't really know. And he said to me, he goes, you—he's like, how old are you? And I was 39 at the time. And he's like, I'm 39. he's like, you know, it's we, It's a weird age because you're kind of too young to coast on the laurels of what we did together, <laughs> and you're kind of <laughs> too old to start something new.
2: So <laughs> obnoxious. Yeah. I understood how yes. obnoxious that man
3: was. <laughs> and so I— that really kind of fired me up that I would try something new mm-hmm. because I didn't want to be one of those people who coasted on what I did before, even though. So that's, you came to Silicon Valley. as Many mo- Obama
2: administration. I moved. People. I
3: actually moved out to San Francisco because my white, my now wife is from the East Bay. We had a debate about New York or San Francisco. She won the debate. We moved here. I wasn't even intending to work in Silicon Valley first. I was going to do some. I was doing some consulting, some some tech, some non tech, mm-hmm. and uh, I ended up working at GoFundMe, and I was there for. Almost two years, mm-hmm. and in my mind, it was sort of like I'm going to try something new, and I'm going to like get into tech. I'd never done anything in my life other than campaigns and government since so right. the day I graduated from college. And I thought, and I th- sort of thought in my head, and this is sort of how wrong I was. I was done with politics. Hillary Clinton would get elected. Barack Obama's legacy was safe. Everything was fine. I I would do something else. And then two things happened. Hillary Clinton did not win. Spoiler alert. And then Pod Save America, which we had done this—originally uh, John originally John Favreau and I, and then Lovett and Tommy joined in this podcast with Bill Simmons, mm-hmm. Keeping it 600, which was just a hobby. It was like, we're going to do this for a few months during the election. It's a chance to talk about politics. Mm-hmm. It's fun. And what we were sort of assumption was, if Hillary won, we would probably stop. Mm-hmm. Like, we had this—Obama had promised us an interview— after the election, so we mm-hmm. figured we would do the Obama interview, mm-hmm. wrap this thing up, and then John and Tommy would go back to their consulting firm. Love it would go back to writing TV and movies, and I would go back to working GoFundMe. And then the two things happened: is they started Crooked Media and Pot Save America took off in that environment, mm-hmm. and Trump won. And I I couldn't. It's like it just the the pull of politics was too much, and I wanted. And they had some really John John and Tommy had some really interesting ideas about how to leverage our platform mm-hmm. for. Activism, and I got sucked out of tech and back into politics. And I'm, mm-hmm. as much as I really enjoyed working at GoFundMe, and the people who work there were great, that like this is sort of feel like I feel like where I need to be to stay sane. Right. In this to, do, world. to have
2: other voices, and the, yeah. the growth of podcasts has been fascinating. Yeah, in terms we we, of
3: voices. we we picked the right time to you start. You did absolutely.
2: Yes. So you're writing this book, though. You're moving into books. The untru- that's that is what you talk about on yeah. uh, on on the pod, which is the untrumping America. Yeah. What, how does that
3: happen? in the, I divide the book into three sections. One is who the Republicans are, which we talked about because mm-hmm. I think that's very important to sort of right. knock people aside the head with a two by four about this. Mm-hmm. Second is how do we beat Trump? And we can talk about that. But the third thing, and the reason why I really wrote the book, because if it was just how we beat Trump, that was that's not going to that's not something that's going to be um, there's not that's not evergreen, right? But the real reason was beating Trump is not enough, that if we don't, if Democrats do not make, fixing our politics and democratic reform at the center of our party, we're just going to operate in a world where Mitch McConnell, Neil Gorsuch, and Brett Kavanaugh control the policy in America for the next 30 to 40 years. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure in the world of climate change that that's a thing that we can survive. Mm -hmm. And so Democrats have to understand that both the institutions of politics in the context of the Senate and Electoral College are fundamentally biased against us for a long time. And second, Republicans have ruthlessly exploited the laws to diminish the power of our progressive majority. And mm-hmm. that is through a combination of voter suppression, gerrymandering, campaign, exploiting campaign finance loopholes, and rigging the courts. And if we don't take on each and one of those, those things, it doesn't matter whether we nom- can- nominate a candidate who's for Medicare for all, Medicare for some, mm-hmm. Medicare for one additional person in America. None of those things are happening. And so we have to take on the institutional barriers to progressive policy. And I think the, the biggest is well, as we think about it, like this is the path America is on, and it's getting worse every day, which is the, mm-hmm. the country, it's a growing, progressive, younger, diverse majority that is going to be governed for as far as the eye can see by a shrinking conservative, mostly white minority. Mm-hmm. And I don't I don't think that is sustainable. To the country, and I don't think it's mm-hmm. sustainable to the policies we care about. And it's certainly not sustainable in a world in which the planet is melting. And if we don't take on just the basic ideas of how Republicans have power right now, the solution to climate change is dependent upon eight to ten Republicans doing the right thing, right. And there's no evidence of anything that's happened in the last twenty years to suggest that's possible. So we're basically deciding if we're going to abide by politics as they are, we're basically deciding that we're just going to let climate change take its toll mm-hmm. and do nothing
2: else. Mm-hmm. Some people feel like that's the, how it's got to go. Like that's how revolutions happen in terms of I think your your point of this increasingly progressive urban based mm-hmm. as technology increases people are going to be living in cities yep. more than rural areas. Uh, clearly as they're going to have these mega cities and that will have all its issues around technology and privacy and things like that but and you will have this overclass of conservatives. Yep. That doesn't not break correct or not? Or does it have to wait until it breaks? I
3: think, I think we have to break it. Right. right. We have to do stuff to address it because one of the things that I, as I look back on our time in the Obama years and I think we did things the best job we could, we did things overwhelmingly right, but we, there's some things we missed. And one things we missed is that really not just during Obama years, but for a long period of time, Democrats have we are uncomfortable with political power.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: We are uncomfortable with wielding it. We're uncomfortable with acquiring it. And we have to recognize that we have to change how we do things. We have to be more aggressive. And I always think back to we had sixty senators briefly while Obama was president. and every every one of them agreed that d c should be a state. We never even had a real debate in the Congress internally or externally about, making D.C. a state because it seemed like dirty pool because Mm -hmm. D.C. is a state that votes 90-10 Democratic in a presidential election. These are clearly two Democratic senators, probably two very progressive Democratic senators. Mm -hmm. And we never thought about because we sort of we were too we didn't we felt uncomfortable with doing something, but just give ourselves more power. And I'm not saying devolve into McConnell-esque nihilism, Mm -hmm. but on the things that we believe in and we think would help us Politically, we have to focus on them because we're never – we're not going to be able to solve the problems that we care about, big or small. Without fixing the imbalance of political power.
2: Well, the other part is one of, is the reliance on demographics. To me, they're, they're saying that we it doesn't matter. Eventually, it will out itself because demographics will take over. I'm like, not if you can control it technologically.
3: Yeah, and even not if
2: you can control it technologically. And that to me, that's the where the miss was was the ability to reach. One of the things I used to talk about is you don't have to have a hit movie. You just have to find your audience. Yeah. and I felt that way politically. If they find their audience, it doesn't matter if you can't find your audience, even if you have a bigger audience.
3: Like, there was this view, I think a lot of what drove some of the complacency in the 2016 election was this view that demography was destiny. Mm -hmm. And that misunderstood two things. One, it underestimated the impact of laws to reduce the power of Mm -hmm. emergent demographic groups. But it also missed the fact that demography, that if you have a bunch of diverse progressives moving to certain states, that means they're moving out of other states. Right. And, where everyone got it wrong was the belief was that North Carolina, Georgia, Arizona, maybe Texas would become blue before Michigan, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Iowa, Wisconsin became red. Mm-hmm. And it moved faster in one direction than we thought. And that was a huge mistake. And there was also a view that that everyone believed in the Clinton campaign for at least at the outset, a lot of Obama people believed was that Barack Obama's performance with white voters in 2012 was the bottom. That w- that was the worst a Democrat would do and that Hillary Clinton would have even though there might be some drop off in 2016 among African American turnout for her that Obama had, it would be made up for by more white voters. But she actually did worse mm-hmm. than Obama. And what we were missing was it wasn't really about Obama so much as it was about a much bigger thing that was pulling the demographic sort of the demographic polarization in, you know, in that direction.
2: So what what do we do because there was this period during the Reagan administration I'm old enough mm-hmm. to remember it was a little like this. Mm-hmm. It was a lot like this actually. People thought it was hopeless. And then you moved into eight years of Clinton. You know what I mean, pretty quickly and progressiveness, a mm-hmm. lot of change, a lot of big changes in this country, maybe too many too quickly. Mm-hmm. What is the key parts of on Trumping behaving like them? Or No, it's
3: it's it's not behaving like them. It give is give me
2: the five as we finish up. We've sure. got five minutes. So, so.
3: I would like the, the things Democrats have to do is they have to make political structural reform the centerpiece of the party. And so that means not just undoing voter suppression laws, it means voter expansion, right? We have to look aggressively at expanding to recently incarcerated people who paid their debts to society. It is the most aggressive version of automatic voter registration, which could be done nationally if we mm-hmm. did it, if not at the state level. Vote by mail everywhere. So voter expansion, second, undoing gerrymandering. And that which involves winning races at the state and local level.
2: Which Eric Holder is working on, it, which Eric
3: Holder is, mm-hmm. and there are a bunch of other groups who are doing mm-hmm. it, and there's real progress there. Um
2: well, it seems to be winning in courts right now.
3: It is, although the Supreme Court has reduced the ability to challenge right, it in that's courts. Right. And so we're going to have to we're going to have to win races and this is the election where it happens and if we don't do it in 2020 we're not we're going to have to wait another 10 years to solve the problem mm-hmm. and it is you know you saw it in the 2018 election where democrats won the popular vote by 7 points which is more than the republicans won it by in 2010 yet we won 23 fewer seats mm-hmm. because of gerrymandering campaign finance reform it, like people one of the most important things that has sparked this republican Sort of conservative ascendance. Citizens United. Citizens United happening in January of 2010. Now that is not something that can be undone at the with in Congress, but we can. We obviously constitutional amendment is very challenging, but Democrats should push more aggressively for it, and mm-hmm. we should be passing it in Congress to make ourselves a champion of it. We have to be more aggressive with the law if we have power with the laws so we have that bring transparency to these dark money groups that mm-hmm. be, a president can do something Obama decided not to do, which I think was ultimately a mistake, which is require federal contractors to disclose political contributions mm-hmm. To because there, that's a sure. huge – that it, it makes it sort of an industry leader with things we can do at the state level there. You know, the courts I think is the big one here because even you do everything else right, the statistic that keeps me up at night is that – when Brett Kavanaugh is Ruth Bader Ginsburg's age today, my daughter will be 32. Mm-hmm. She turns two in May. Right. So this is what we are... Even if we did everything else right, the Republicans will have this conservative veto over progressive policies. Right. We could get rid of the filibuster. We could add make D.C. a state. We could do all these things. Pass Medicare for All struck down by a 6-3 conservative majority. And there's nothing that is going to change that if we just rely on the normal process. So I am someone who believes... Democrats should walk out – if we had the White House and Senate, walk out of the inauguration, eliminate the filibuster, make D.C. a state, and add two Supreme Court justices.
2: Mm-hmm. And Which Pete
3: Buttigieg idea. P- this, Pete Buttigieg is one of the first people who mm-hmm. pushed for this. I think there are some other things we should do in terms of term limits in the long run, but we, we need to rebalance the scales from what Mitch McConnell did in 2016 with the Merrick Garland pick. And I think that would be a fundamental – game-changer. Mm-hmm. And I also think there's this ancillary political benefit of it, which is Republicans have been able to make their voters care about the courts, which means they turn out yep. in Senate midterms. We have not been able to do that. Mm-hmm. And we have to do that. And I think if we were to embrace an aggressive court reform agenda, it would give ourselves the opportunity to do that, would focus more attention mm-hmm. on the courts. Because under the current system, is unsustainable for progressive policy goals.
2: All right. So going forward, we one more minute, how do you look at this next election? Do you think there's a possibility of beating Donald Trump? I think most people think no. Many the, people think
3: no. I, I think Donald Trump is has advantages. Incumbents usually win. Incumbents and strong economies usually win, but he is very beatable. Mm-hmm. We have to. We need. Why? Ex- because he he is someone who still is historically unpopular. All of his policies are less popular. All of his his sort of policy performances are are underwater. Mm-hmm. He won by seventy thousand votes over three states. Everything that went wrong for Democrats that could have gone wrong went wrong in 2016. So the opportunity is there. But it's going to require someone who can do – like we're having this false choice discussion about mm-hmm. should we turn out more mm-hmm. Democratic voters? Should we persuade these other voters? And the math of electoral college is such is that you have to do – you need a candidate who can do three things well enough to mm-hmm. get 200 electoral votes. One is turn out new voters and the four million Obama 2012 voters who not turn out th- 2016. Two, you have to persuade some number of these Obama-Trump voters, and I include the people who voted for Obama and Trump, and then also Mm -hmm. the people who voted for Obama and Gary Johnson, right? Mm -hmm. Sort of who couldn't, who don't, they disapprove of Trump, but they just couldn't get there for Hillary Clinton. Can you get those people? Mm -hmm. And the third group that we don't think about enough is you have to hold on to these suburban Romney-Clinton voters. Romney 2012, Hillary Clinton 2016. Many of them voted for a Democrat in 2018 for Congress, but— We're going to have to keep enough of them if we're going to have any chance at Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Arizona. And so we have to do those three things. Those things are all doable. Donald Trump has many flaws as a candidate. He has a lack of discipline that can be exploited. He has wasted a lot of time where he could be driving a core economic message that could help him by – Getting distracted by a million things and Deborah w-
2: Messing's a pain in the ass.
3: Yeah, that's right. Deborah Messing. <laughs> I like her. She's a, she's a good
2: tweeter. She's a
3: great tweeter. Yeah. Uh and she's she may be our secret weapon if she can keep getting <laughs> Just Trump upset. Keep all
2: the women attacking him. That's and right. He reacts. Them it'd be very yeah. funny. Anyway, it's I recommend anyone read it. It's going to be really fast Because I think nobody, unfortunately, we live in a reality show. No one knows how it's going. To, the story's that's going to right. end. And that's what's shocking, you know, kind of fascinating, because most people, these things are inevitable. Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show. His book is called "Untrumping America, A Plan to Make America a Democracy Again. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Eric Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey E S J. Dan, you are all over online. Where can people best find you
3: uh, and the book? Twitter at Dan Pfeiffer, and you can find the book at untrummingamerica.com.
2: Oh, nice. Well done. If you uh, like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Pivot, Reset, Recode Media, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice or tap a link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Rabe. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Deco. I'll be back here on Friday. Tune in then.
1: HBO Max brings all of HBO to your fingertips, plus an epic list of new Max originals. Whether you're into animation, classic movies, or binge-worthy series, HBO Max's suggested collections are curated by real humans, not robots, so you find the right thing to watch every time. thousands of options for you and the family to choose from it's the streaming platform of your dreams hbo max where hbo needs so much more start streaming now at hbomax.com